0: Hello and welcome to Uncommon Law, my podcast about true stories from my life experience of over 50 years as a lawyer and trial judge. This is a look at the law from the inside out, stuff they don't teach in law school. This is Judge Rudy Greco, retired justice of the New York State Supreme Court. I used to be an amateur boxer, I worked as a corner man, a manager of boxers, a lawyer, for amateur and professional boxing champions. I was also the attorney for Gleason's gym. And Gleason's, uh, the time of uh, of this story, was uh, located on West 31st Street, just east of 8th Avenue, in a big loft building on the ground floor. And uh, outside was a beautiful sign painted on metal by the famous artist Leroy Neiman. And it showed two guys uh, boxing, And there was a quote. It was a beautiful, Neiman-esque version of the two guys sparring. And there's a quote from the Aeneid, Book 5, by the famous writer Virgil. And the quote said, Now whoever has courage and a strong and collected spirit in his breast, let him come forward, lace on the gloves, and put up his hands. But one day, I'm out there shooting the breeze with a couple of guys, Dennis Rappaport, who was co-manager of Jerry Cooney and a famous trainer and old timer, Teddy, excuse me, Freddie Menna, who trained Vito Antrofermo, and any number of other famous fighters, and we were just talking back and forth, and Freddie looked up at the sign and he said, "Listen, you guys, who's this guy Virgil? Was he a trainer? Who did he train?" Does anybody know him? And we explained, no, he's just an old-time writer. But that's <laughs> typical of Gleason's gym. When you walked into Gleason's, there was first I Rebecca, the owner, who stood there collecting money from people he didn't know who wanted to visit, spectators, tourists, what have you, in the, the flotsam of jets society that walks in and out of a boxing gym. You never know. Miles Davis used to hang out there. Bill Evans, the saxophonist, all kinds of people, guys that got out of jail and had no place to go. You never know what was going to turn up. And they would sit right at the very front in a couple of folding chairs and pay a dollar to get in or something like that. And everybody else were dues-paying members of the gym uh, or connected uh, managers or trainers, what have you, boxers and um, hangers-on. And the gym was a very long rectangular space at the ground floor of this big industrial loft building. And it was probably about 150 feet long, maybe more, and maybe about 30 feet wide. It was narrow, and it was only one floor. And above it was a, there was a stairway leading up to what amounted to a small balcony, which was only about three feet wide, which ran around the whole perimeter in a U shape around upstairs in the gym. And there were some locker room lockers up on 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 that uh, balcony, and uh, there were. Um, Also, spectators who would would go up there, it was a little quieter to to stand up there and look down on the two rings that were used for sparring and boxing. The gym was a cacophony of sound. I mean, there were guys punching bags, uh, guys hitting the heavy bag, grunts, groans, uh, exhortations, curses in every language imaginable. It was like a Tower of Babel. Uh, Guys jumping rope. The klaxon bell would go off every three minutes for a one-minute rest, just like in 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 boxing rounds. And then the the bell would ring a minute later, and then that would go for three minutes, and everybody would exercise or do whatever they were doing for three minutes until the next rest. It was it was constant, constant noise, and the smells. The smell of Gleason's gym was something else altogether. Uh, you go in there, and and the smells were from I, I called it ode Gleason's. It was a mix of Sweat, liniment, rubbing alcohol, wintergreen, urine, cigarette smoke, because they, they didn't bar smoking in those days. Uh, you name it, and it had a, an, an odor all to itself, which you became accustomed to, and you kind of liked. It reminded you you were in the place where you wanted to be. So one day I walk in, I had heard about this young man And I walk in, and I was supposed to uh, meet him and maybe talk to him about managing him or something of that nature. And my first time I saw him, he was standing under the heavy bag, under the uh, speed bag, punching the speed bag with his trainer right there. And he was punching that speed bag with bad intentions and and phenomenally fast hands and, and... Total concentration, and he had a cold, hard look in his eyes. He looked something like uh, a cross between Roberto Duran and and, and Charles Manson. He was concentrating. He was he was serious, which was impressive. And you could see uh, by his bearing and the way he did everything that he knew who he was, and he was good. He was dressed in from head to toe in black tights, and over the tights, around his waist, was the foul proof cuff that. Boxes the foul-proof cup, McCarthy's foulproof cup. That boxes wear. it's a heavy leather cup. It's lined in 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 the crotch area with with uh, leather, which encases metal. And foulproof McCarthy, his name was, used to prove and demonstrate the value of the cup by letting people swing a baseball bat at his crotch while he was wearing the cup. (laughs) And that's why I always laughed when boxers in the ring got hit with a low low blow and made believe that oh, you know, that was terrible. It it, it probably didn't hurt. They just wanted some time to breathe. (laughs) And they faked it because foul-proof McCarthy would have been the first one up there saying, come on, that doesn't hurt, you know. But this cup was special. Even the cup was special. And boxers in the gym they don't wear them under their trunks, they wear them out over their trunks so it's easy to take off when you're doing other parts of the workout when you don't need the cup, like rope jumping or shadow boxing. And this cup was special because it was really nice black leather with red saddle stitching. It was obviously custom made, and you knew it was custom made because right across the front uh, of the waist, underneath uh, the, the stomach of the, of the fighter... In bright red hand stitched leather letters was the name pistolero uh, which was his fighting nickname. His name's not necessary, but it was pistolero and that made an impression he, he the whole appearance and his whole demeanor and the way he he trained and everything else uh he was lean and mean and, and, and dead serious, and he was good, and he knew it. And you want that in, in, in a fighter. You want that confidence. And I didn't end up managing him uh, because he and his father wanted uh, a what I thought was an exorbitant signing bonus for his talents. He had fought since he was a kid. He was at this time about 18 years old and uh, ready to turn pro And he had fought extensively for many years, uh, starting as a a youngster in kid gloves and then the Spanish gloves and the New York City uh, Daily News golden gloves and AAU bouts, etc., etc. I had seen him fight in Madison Square Garden in the golden gloves finals uh, for the welterweight 147-pound open championship. And he fought the most devastating amateur of his time, a guy named Mark Breland, who went on to become welterweight world champion. Mark Breland was from a devastating puncher, a tall, skinny kid who could, who could punch. I guess he could knock out a rhino. He had a fabulous leverage and a great punch. And Mark Breland was a l- lovely young guy and, uh, but a, a deadly puncher. And uh, this kid fought Breland. And Breland had already won four Golden Gloves championships. And he was going for his unprecedented fifth. And this was the finals, and this guy walked into, Pistolero walked into the ring totally unimpressed and unintimidated, despite Breland's record and, and uh, his uh, reputation. Well, the fight went on, and Pistolero lost. He got stopped. I think it was in the third round. He got stopped, but there was no shame, and he was, to- he was, uh, he lost the fight, but he wasn't beaten or defeated. He lost the fight but you could see that he wanted more and he couldn't wait and he said so in the after fight interview, he couldn't wait to meet Mark Breland again uh, in a rematch and I thought that was impressive because Mark Breland was uh, an extraordinary amateur. So over the next few years, I got to know Pistolero even better because I had become um, the lawyer and uh, sometime corner man and friend of uh, three-time world champion Wilfred Benitez. And Pistolero became his chief sparring partner. Pistolero's trainer was also Wilfred Benitez's trainer at one period in time, a guy named Victor Machado from Williamsburg in Brooklyn. And um, he put the kid together with Wilfred and uh, developed a, 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 sparring par and friendship, a sparring partner and friendship relationship uh, with 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 Wilfred, and uh, it's not easy to do. But it, a sparring partner is a very, very tough job. A sparring partner has to be, at this, at one time, good enough and competent enough to challenge and make a championship-caliber, world-class fighter work hard. You don't want easy work. You have to work hard because the fights themselves are going to be, at that level, are going to be tough. On the other hand... You can't let your ego get in the way and make the champion look bad constantly because that will be counterproductive to his training. And you have to achieve a balance between working hard and and not overdoing it. And And Pistolero was very, very good, and he understood his place. And uh, in return for giving uh, Wilfred all he could handle in the ring, uh, and he got paid well as a sparring partner, and he got to be featured uh, as the undercard, uh, on the undercard of uh, Wilfred's Bouts, which was very good. It's it's uh, analogous to uh, rock bands opening up for a big, big world-class star. And it's good because people you're being showcased and people see you and uh, you're getting good fights, uh, good matches, and uh, good money. So it was a nice relationship. Now, I worked with Pistolero as a sparring partner for Wilfred at two main event fights that Wilfred fought in Las Vegas at the Dunes Hotel. And I got to know Pistolero very, very well. And he was, a, the more you got to know him, the more you liked him. He was a wonderful young man. Uh, he was very responsible. He was always on time for training. He was always in shape, no excuses, no diversions, getting lost at the gambling tables or with some gals or in a disco or a club or drinking or smoking or doing anything wrong. He was always all business, very professional, the most reliable guy in the training camp, including the champion. He was he was terrific. And and we had to go, because of the Vegas heat, we had to do road work at 2 o'clock in the morning, at 3 o'clock in the morning. It was the only time it was cool enough. And we would get in the car and go to the University of Nevada Las Vegas athletic field where they had a nice paved track, which meant you kept the world champion off the streets, away from people away from cars and on a good surface that wasn't damaging his legs and he wasn't going to trip on pavement or rocks or anything else. He's, he's a commodity and you have to be careful and, and it worked out very well. Well, Pistolero was always there. We had to go at 2 o'clock in the morning. He'd be there at 1.30 all ready to go and do his road work and, and keep the champ, you know, build up his spirit and, and keep him out and keep him and, and enthusiastic. He was even at one point in time, with caught a cold and Pistolero cooked up. And this is a 19-year-old kid cooked up pescado. Pescado is a Puerto Rican fish stew. It's a national dish. And it's sort of like um, Jewish penicillin, the chicken soup for Puerto Ricans. And uh, you have pescado and you're not feeling well, you'll feel better. It makes you strong. And he cooked it up. And Wilfred found it. He it was, it was, was born in the Bronx, but he's Puerto Rican. He loved it. And uh, that's the kind of kid Pistolero was. And his his career was building up over the years, and um, doing very, very, very well, and in the following years, he fought for the New York State Welterweight Championship, and he fought at Madison Square Garden in a terrific fight, it turned out to be the fight of the year, there were five knockdowns, unfortunately, Pistolero was knocked down three of those times. And his opponent was knocked down, too. He was the last guy knocked down, and he lost the fight. After that fight, although his name was bigger and better than ever, his attitude changed. And it's a funny thing with Latin fighters, because all the Latin fighters are brought up on this diet of, you're invincible, nobody can beat you, nobody's going to beat you, you're the best in the world, it's never going to happen. Well, that's not a great thing to do, because the mark of a champion in boxing is not what you do Uh, when you get knocked down, all human beings, anybody can get knocked down. Muhammad Ali got knocked down. Sugar Ray Leonard got knocked down. Everybody, Rocky Marciano got knocked down. It does. Joe Lewis got knocked down. In fact, Joe Lewis is the best example. It's it's what happens after you get knocked down. That's the mark of a champion. And what happens with some of these Latin fighters, when they're told they're invincible and they lose a fight, uh, that aura is now diminished. And some of them don't come back. Now, now Joe Lewis was the antithesis. He lost to Max Schmeling, he got knocked out. In the next fight he came back and he beat Max Schmeling, knocked him out in the first round. And uh, that's the antithesis of what we're talking about. But Pistolero, somehow or other, he wasn't quite the same. There was an edge uh, that was lost in his whole persona because he was no longer invincible. But he still fought on and he was doing well. but it wasn't the same. Now, he had a girlfriend, and she worked in the, uh, at one of the rental car companies in Manhattan. She was a, a secretary, and uh, she got him a job because the uh, boxers and the professional boxing, 1% of the boxers at the very top make 99% of the money. Everybody else is struggling. It's tough. And so, and it takes about 10 years to become a world champion or a, world, a world-class fighter, Uh it's, it's not something easy. It, there's a long road and you have to, uh, just like any other profession, acting, or football player or anything else, it takes a while to get there. So Pistolero got a job through his girlfriend with the rental car company, ferrying cars from Midtown to the airport. So you go to LaGuardia or JFK or Newark Airport and bring cars back and forth, transporting cars back and forth for the rental car agency. One day she's sick. I think she had morning sickness. She wasn't feeling well. She was pregnant with, with, with his child. And um, she said, you know, on your way to JFK, why don't you drop me off? She lived in South Queens on the way, I think in Ozone Park, not far from JFK Airport. She says, I'm going home. I don't feel well, and you can drive me and, and just drop me off. He said, sure. No problem. Let's go. So when he gets to the neighborhood where she lives and he lives, he encounters a couple of friends and said, listen, man, can we borrow the car? We have an errand to run. And uh, we'll bring it back in an hour. Are you going to be? Is that all right? He said, yeah, sure. Take the car. Listen, come right back and leave the keys here, okay? Put the keys under the mat and leave it here in the, in the apartment house parking facility. So he went upstairs, came back down an hour or so later and picked up the car. And there it was in its place where it was supposed to be, as his friends promised. He drove off. Well, he didn't get very far until he heard a police siren right behind him. They pulled him over. Rousted him out of the car, searched him, opened up the car, looked, and found a loaded gun in the trunk of the car. And they said, what's this all about? He said, well, I don't know. It's a rental car. I'm a transporter. I don't know what's in there, and, and, and anything could be in there. He said, I have no idea what was in there. Oh, they said, no, no, come on, you know. Well, it turns out, in retrospect, we found out later on, he was arrested, and he was charged with armed robbery, and possession of a a loaded gun because the friends who supposedly borrowed the car for an errand used it to pull a stick up. They were Latin guys, and they held up, it turns out, two young black guys who were brothers, uh, would-be DJs and rappers who were covered with artificial bling. They had all kinds of bling on them, but it was all phony stuff anyway, and they pressed charges, and... I ended up representing Pistolero in court against these charges. Now, he wasn't going to give up his friends or anything like that, but he had nothing to say about whatever happened. His his story was I didn't know, which I believe he really didn't know what was going on. I don't think he he lent it to them knowing their intentions, their real intentions, but he was going to be loyal to his friends. We have a suppression hearing uh, about the evidence, about the about the uh, admissibility of the evidence, and I'm before a judge, a female judge, whom I knew. She was a lovely lady, not the brightest bulb in the box, but she was a good person, and she was fair, but the problem was she wasn't paying attention. The hearing, a suppression hearing, which should have lasted maybe an hour, went on for two days. The cops lied. The cops said they the, the reason that they stopped the car was some phony premise of uh, a taillight was out, or which, which it wasn't. Then they stopped and they said they saw bullets in open view on the seat of the car. There were no bullets. And that led them to search the whole car and there they found the gun in the locked trunk. The whole thing was a mess. The victims, supposed victims, they were lying. Because they inflated the value of what was stolen from them by tens of thousands of dollars, they were wearing twenty-five-dollar fake Rolexes, and they were looking to get you know five or six thousand dollars uh, for each watch that they had. And according to them, they were wearing ten watches anyway. It was ridiculous. I cross-examined those two characters, and they were lying to the extent that at lunch break, after the lunch break, when they were to be continued to be cross-examined, they didn't show up. They left. They never came back to testify. So the whole thing was a raging mess. And the judge, I'm yelling and shouting to get her attention. And she said, I know you for a long time. Since when did you become an animal in the courtroom? I said, well, since you're making plans to get your hair done for your vacation that's coming up and you're not paying attention to what's going on here. What's going on here is a travesty. This is a joke. This guy had little or nothing to do with any of this thing. She said, I understand that. She said, but there's a gun charge here. And it was loaded, and it was in the truck. And I said, sure, but meanwhile, in any rental car, you could find a dead body, 250 keys of cocaine. Uh, You never know what you're going to find. You can find anti-tank guns. There's no flamethrowers. There's never any idea what you can find there. It's a rental car, and they're famous for that. People use rental cars for all kinds of things. There's nothing to link him to that gun. Well, in the meantime, while we were at the hearing, a couple of days that we were in court... Pistolero was idolized by the court officers. They knew him from his fighting career, and they really looked up to him. And he was a nice kid. He was a very affable guy. He knew how to get along with everybody. He came, by the way, from, I didn't mention this, from a very good family, working class people. His mom and dad worked for one of the utility companies. They both had responsible jobs. They were church-going people. He had a sister, two sisters, and a brother. And they all went to school, as he did. And they were good, you know, uh, God-fearing good people. And by the way, the best fighters come from, they don't come from total poverty. They come from working class families where there's a structure and there's a work ethic. Uh, And he came from that background. They were good people. And he was a very affable guy. And he made his intentions known that he wanted to become a court officer and had been uh, willing or or, um, thinking about taking the court officer's exam. The court officers were thrilled to hear that. They went out and got him an application for the exam, told him when it was coming up, he also made his intention known to the judge that he was going to marry his girlfriend and, and uh, make her a legitimate woman and, and support their, their child. And the judge, uh, I guess feeling a little bit guilty about really not paying attention and, and, and really understanding that it was uh, the whole thing was a travesty, said, okay, even the DA went along with her idea. She said, I'll tell you what I'll do. If he takes a plea to the lowest felony, which is an E-class felony, I'll give him the minimal sentence, which is five years probation. She says, I can't let him off the hook because he had, there's a gun in that in that car, and I can't just in good conscience let anybody go with a loaded gun in a car that they were driving. I'd be on the front page of the papers, and, and and it's not right. She says, I can't live with that. She said, but I will do that. I'll give him that plea, and next year when he comes back, if he's gotten married and he's taken the court officers exam and he's kept his nose clean, no problem. I would even reduce his sentence from five years probation. I would have the basis then to reduce it and take away any restrictions on his rights to become, uh, you know, the, the conviction of the felony, etc., and, and basically clean up his record if he showed. Because after all, he did have a clean record up until this time. He'd never did anything wrong. So out we walked. Onto the steps of the courthouse. He took the plea. And it was August. It was uh, the second week, third week in August. It was middle of the week. Pistolero came around, turned to me, hugged me, and kissed me. And said, I can't thank you enough. You gave me a chance to live the rest of my life. I don't know what to say. I won't let you down. I love you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I said, all right, that's okay. Listen, go easy. Get organized. Get yourself together. And... uh, Take the test, get the job, get married, and let's go on from there. Yes, 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 yes. That was in mid-August on a Wednesday afternoon, Wednesday evening. A month later, I go to the first fights of the new season at Madison Square Garden. And immediately, I am approached by a guy from the shady side of life, a wise guy, who says, Rudy, have you seen Pistolero? I said, no. What's wrong? Well, you were his lawyer. I said, that was a month ago. Yeah. He said, oh, you did good for him. You did a good job for him. He said, but uh, he's in big trouble. He's not long for this world. I said, what? What are you saying? What the hell are you talking about? He says, no, I, I, I don't even want to talk about it. I'm just telling you right now. I don't even want to say if you don't know, I, I, don't want to, I don't even want to mention it, but he's got a big problem. Five minutes later, a friend of mine who's with the New York State Athletic Commission who does uh, moonlights with the At- Athletic Commission, he was a uh, trustee for the Police Benevolent Association, he was a cop, a fellow named Joe Dwyer, he comes over and he said, Rudy, have you seen Pistolero? I said, Joe, what is this? This is like a parade. Uh, everybody's saying the same thing. I just, the uh, bad guys came over and, and asked me the same question. Well, I don't want to see some poor cop pull him over in a traffic stop and get killed, some guy with a wife and kid. I said, what the heck are you talking about? How, what do you mean? What is this? He said, you don't know? I says, I have no idea. He said, well, back in August, which was, he gave me a date, and it was the Saturday following The Wednesday, when we walked out of court and he was hugging and kissing me. He and this other guy shot and killed two people, two guys, and shot and killed, not and shot and wounded their girlfriends. Two weeks after that, he did the same thing up in the Bronx. He shot and killed two people with his partner who was a guy who was a 'er ne'er-do-well that hung around the gym who never? was a wannabe. He was never going to be anything. He couldn't touch, he couldn't carry Pistolero's bag. And they shot and killed two more people and wounded two others. He said he's wanted for four homicides and four additional shootings. I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, they both signed up as collectors and executioners for these big drug dealers in the Bronx. And they went out and got hired, and this is what they did. And nobody can find him right now. I I was, my jaw dropped. I was in total shock. There was a guy who was hugging and kissing me and telling me how good he was and how thankful he was and he's going to be this, that, and the other thing. And just a matter of days later, he goes out and kills people. And quite a few of them. Well, Pistolero finally made the rankings at the very top. He was number one on the FBI's 10 Most Wanted list. And that year, at the end of September, about a week after the fights, was the premier show of America's Most Wanted. And who's the star of the show? Pistolero. And nobody can find him. And I certainly didn't hear, and I didn't know where he was. I had no idea of any of this. It was a total surprise. Well, next year goes by, nobody finds him. The following year... He's still at large, and they rerun the original segment from the premiere show, and somebody drops a dime on him, calls up, calls in the station, and said, I think it's this guy. They pick him up. He's in rural Pennsylvania, in the Pocono somewhere, living with her. Now they have two kids, and he's a house painter, living a quiet life, painting houses in Pennsylvania, When they get him, I think it was the following day, it was in the papers, and I get a phone call. And who is it? Pistolero. Rudy, I need your help. I said, my friend, do me a favor, forget my number. And I hung up. He broke my heart. And as I said at the very beginning, what's in the name? Well, Pistolero had finally lived up to his name. Thanks for listening. Come back next week for another episode of Uncommon Law, Lessons They Don't Teach in Law School. I'm Judge Rudy Greco. Court is adjourned.